Hello, I'm Mita Mystery and this is Healing Place, the podcast that explores how we can heal our mind, body and emotions using science-based tools and natural healing methods. Today, I chat with Fiona Murden. Fiona is an award-winning author, psychologist, podcast host and CEO of Oka Life. She is passionate about helping people and believes everyone should have the opportunity to live a fulfilling life. In this episode, Fiona shares the importance of role models in helping us to reach our potential. She also offers tips on how to boost self-awareness, emotional intelligence and prevent burnout. Let's meet Fiona. Hello Fiona, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to have you here. Pleasure to join you, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for your time. So let's just dive straight in. Tell us a bit more about yourself. So I'm an organisational psychologist, which people typically trip up at the word organisational before psychologist. I'll tell you about that in a second. I'm an author, a founder, um, a podcast host and a mum as well. Wow, so many balls juggling there. I love that you you have a podcast and author. We have things in common already, but I'm really keen to find out uh, more about this organisational psychologist. And with your book, Mirror Thinking, is that based on Yeah, your so work? I've spent the last 20 years working in, I, I mean, I guess you could call them social environments because it's rather than looking at a person in their individual state it's looking at how people interact and relationships and how everyone's influencing one another the whole time I've spent a lot of time working with leaders as individuals who want to develop but also who want to get the best out of their team and who want to get the best out of their organization and help people working there form sort of perform optimally but also have well-being which is massively important um and I've been really lucky because I've worked with some big businesses, some smaller businesses, um, charities like uh, United for Global Mental Health, uh, creatives, academics, surgeons, athletes. And so the variety has been incredibly rewarding for me, but it's also been very eye-opening because you see the themes and similarities and you also see where things are very different and you know, the way I work is I'm trying to work out why the whole time and then I'll go away and research. And it's it's been a really rewarding career. But I think the thing that has all, always bugged me is I felt like I've wanted to help people more directly who aren't leaders or athletes or people who have already achieved success, but unlock potential in people who haven't yet managed to have the opportunities or someone believe in them. Um, and that's what I've been working on over the last two years is creating a platform that looks at doing that. Brilliant. Can you tell us more about this platform? It sounds absolutely fascinating and also something that's really needed because you're wanting to unlock the potential in people. Yeah, and it's, uh, I find it really frustrating because I see and I, I, I work with teachers as well and head teachers. And I hear over and over again how they'll say when children join school, they will have the same potential. But children from less advantaged backgrounds will tend to start losing their... It's, all, it's, all, it's almost like losing the privilege to access their own belief system and their own potential. 
And I just feel it's such a waste of talent and ability because I genuinely believe everyone has potential. And now that looks different for everyone, but that's part of what it's really important to do is to explore it and to work out what does that look like for that individual and how can we help them if they want to attain it, how do we help them get there? And one of the main factors is having someone believe in them. Uh, And if a child is from a disadvantaged background, their mum may be a single mum. She may believe in them, but she's working full-time to try and make ends meet, um, more than full-time, you know, shifts or whatever. So she doesn't have time to sit down and say, oh, what do you want to do with your future and what does that look like? So I think my main driver is being able to provide the tools and the approaches that we know work, but provide it at scale so that people can access it, um, hopefully, in a more democratic sort of way. I love that, you know, you're recognizing the barriers, particularly for parents, single moms, those disadvantaged people. And like you say, there is, everybody has a potential and you just need somebody to believe in you. So how does your platform do that? So what we're doing is we were actually using it broadly across um, organizations and charities, but we're focusing in specifically on women now. And it's women going through major life transitions. Um, And this will then extend down to kids in disadvantage populations but we want to start off with volume and and make sure it's all working properly and what it does is it matches mentors with mentees based on psychological factors that we know will enable trust to be built quickly and the relationship to be built quickly and then once you've got that piece in place it enables a lot of other things to happen just by nature of that relationship. But we'll guide people through the relationship on our on our platform. Um, and we also provide them with tools to explore and ways of looking at how to set goals that you actually use the methods we use with leaders and other people to get underneath the skin of what that looks like and make it more probable that they will actually achieve that. Um, when it comes to women, so we've got women going through major life transitions will be matched with another woman, but they'll also have an ally or two or three. And the ally may well typically be a man, and that could be a male colleague or it could be a male family member. And we're helping that man understand how to support that woman, as well as helping the mentor understand how to support that woman as well as helping that woman herself understand what she wants to look for and explore and what's possible and the the idea around that is coming back to mirror thinking it's very much creating a positive social ecosystem which is the most helpful way we know of eliminating biases now I say eliminate that's a bit of a stretch because obviously we're not going to change everything and everyone but it does enable us to shift and create lasting behavior change more than anything else that's really fascinating absolutely and I think what you're saying about having that relationship with somebody who understands you and having not just one person but a few people those role models is quite key and that's something that you talk a lot about in your book don't you Uh, mirror thinking can you tell us a little bit more about 
mirror thinking. Can you just help us understand what that is? Yeah, so what I found was when I've been speaking to these people who are like the top of their game, they'll say things like, when, when I was younger or earlier in my career, I had role models and there were people I could look to to learn from. But I, I don't feel like there is anyone anymore. And I started looking at it and thinking about it a lot more. And I, I started saying to them, I think what you need to do is to take the pieces of each person, whether they're dead, alive, fiction or nonfiction, um, and piece that together in a way that works for you. So, for example might say that Martin Luther King is the best communicator of all time. I'm not Martin Luther King and I don't have uh, his time or his place or, but you can look at what does he do and how does he do that and start incorporating that into your own communication in a way that is authentic to you. And doing that really requires someone else to help you unpick it. So that's one element of it. The second element of it is I then started looking into it in more detail and there are very few books on role modeling and yet we talk about role modeling all the time across all media and then I I'm, I love neuroscience I'm not a neuroscientist I'm a psychologist but I um, started digging into the neuroscience of it and then met up with a guy who's head of brain sciences at UCLA um, who had been investigating something known as the mirror neuron and the mirror neuron is uh, it's in various parts of our brain, so it's not fair to say it's located in one place or that it does one job, but it basically enables us to learn from the people around us. And it does that through internally mirroring what the other person's doing, whether it's behavior, attitudes, values, whether it's something you hear, something you smell, something you taste. And it forms this incredible world where we can visualize and we can imagine and we can daydream and we can storytell. But it's also the basis for how we learn. And so while we do learn in a classroom, 70% of our learning happens socially. And we kind of go, yeah, of course, but then we don't actually use that. And so I was looking at how do we, how do we look at that in a way where we can say, this is happening, it's happening whether we mean it to or not. So how can we harness it and use it as positively as we can? Yeah, I guess we are all interconnected is essentially what we're saying is that as humans, we are so interconnected and we almost need to wake up to this fact that our social and emotional skills are potentially all being impacted by the people that we are interacting with on a day-to-day basis. I think that's my understanding of what mirror thinking is. And that's one of the is. things I actually say in, um, w- one of the things I actually say about it is as adults, we are under this almost, we're almost conceited in the way we think, ah, you know, I'm not influenced by what other people think, but we are still being influenced. And the issue with that is we're aligning our behaviors and attitudes without even realizing that's what we're doing because 95% of cognitive activity is unconscious. So that 5% thinks, oh, I'm making my own decisions. I'm doing this and the other, but actually it's not a lot of the time. So I think we'll at least point yourself in the right direction for that 95% to do its job so that it's not just picking up on things you don't want to pick up on, but it's when you're not deliberating about it or thinking about it, at least if you're surrounded by the type of people who you aspire to be like, it gives you your brain an opportunity to sort of run away with itself and that's fine. 
Yeah, I think there is much, and there's lots of scientific evidence out there. And there's even quotes, like motivational speakers say, you know, you're the sum of the five people that you most spend your time with. And I think subconsciously, we are influenced by media, social media, lots of different factors seep into our subconscious, and mm-hmm. we may not realize it unless we actually take a step back and consciously make an effort to check in with ourselves and ask ourselves, well, where does this belief come from? Or why do I have this attitude? Why do I believe this way? What do I really believe this story that I'm telling myself mm-hmm. about myself? You know, if we go back to our childhood, and uh, often many of us have been shamed, either at school or at home for not being good enough at something. And some of us still carry those stories into our adulthood, don't we? And how do we then start to step away from those narratives? I mean, that's really interesting. And I think it's incredibly true. We do hang on to things. And I'm a psychologist. I trained for seven years. I've worked as a psychologist for 20 years. But I still don't notice what I'm doing or what I'm taking on or, you know, it. So it's not just the knowledge, it's actually what you do with that knowledge and unpacking these things in a way that's healthy rather than deconstructive, I think really requires a safe um, environment with someone else. So you can say things out loud and you can go, oh, yes, I never thought of that. But what I find interesting as well is when I've been profiling leaders, which was a big chunk of my work for a time where I'd do a four-hour in-depth psychological profile, go back to their childhood, work up to where they are today, and then look at what are their strengths, their values, how do they prefer to interact with people, what's their personality, the makeup, what are, what are the things they need to be aware of, what are their derailers, all those sorts of things. But, you know, sometimes those people had never really reflected on things about their childhood because they hadn't gone to therapy necessarily, and this isn't therapy, But you say, oh, okay, so you're reflecting back to them and you say, oh, that's interesting because when you were 16, you did mention that your mum or your dad said, if you don't do this, do you think that's impacted the way you think today? And they'll be like, oh, oh, I've never thought of that. And so we don't because we, unless we go to therapy and we actually sit down and constructively look at something, we tend not to reflect. And so we carry these subconscious beliefs that are never challenged. Yeah, that's really interesting. We do, a lot of us do. And and, and actually that leads me to ask you about social media, mental health and advice that's out there. Because you've, you've mentioned, you know, sitting in therapy and going and speaking to a professional, so to speak. I know on social media, there's lots of information out there. There's lots of accounts giving well-meaning advice. And, and sometimes it is helpful. But to what extent can it be unhelpful is that your experience have you come across anything where you've thought well that's actually not so helpful because is it a replacement for therapy really interesting no it's not a replacement for therapy and I would say quite simply because it's talking and saying things out loud helps so one thing when I was quite junior in what I was doing I used to go in and meet with very senior people and have to profile them and I'd say to colleagues what happens if I don't come up with anything? What happens if I don't have any insights? And they would always say, Fiona, when people talk about themselves, they learn things. And it's true. We, 
but we don't generally have the space to talk about ourselves. We'll be talking to a friend and we'll say, oh, I had this horrid dream last week. Oh, yeah, I did too. What did you dream about? So you're never actually having time to think about things and put them together. So no, it doesn't replace therapy in that sense that you need another human, I believe, to say things out loud to. That's the first point. Second point is it's a snapshot. And these things are so nuanced and they're so personal. So the way that you experience something will be different to the way I experience something because of something that happened in your childhood combined with your genetic makeup, combined with wherever you grew up. And so those factors are not taken consideration of. And then there's also a lot of damaging stuff. So, I mean, there's people who I think do a really good job, like Dr. Julie Smith, where she's she's trying to convey quite complex topics in quite small snippets. And what's beneficial is it opens people's understanding up and it allows them to say, oh, oh, I'm not the only person who feels like that. But there are an awful lot of people who they may be well-meaning or they may be egotistical. I think we have both. And they are just not giving good advice. And what that can do is actually cause quite a lot of damage. I went to see this personal development guru last week who a friend of mine who's a surgeon had said that he'd been reading a lot of his stuff and it was really good and I'd always written him off and I thought, I'm going to take another look. So I read his book. And it was all evidence-based. And I thought, hmm, yeah, you know, maybe I've misread this guy. So I go along to this talk and I'm sat there and he's explaining concepts around self-worth and all these sorts of things. So I'm like, hmm, some of that's true, but some of it's not. And the way it's just that tiny nuance can be damaging. And then one thing he said, which I found really dramatically damaging was, um, he started talking about consistency and how we need to be consistent to be high performers. And I thought, yeah, but what happens if you're a woman? Because if you're a woman, you're not consistent because we have hormones and hormones influence our cognitive thinking, our, our sleep, our paranoia, our anxiety, all those things, which means every woman in that audience, and there were two thirds women, will probably go away and try and think, I can't do this. And they won't think, oh, he's told me the wrong thing. They'll think, I can't do this. And then they may go back and buy more of his courses because they want to work out why they can't do it and what's wrong with them. But there's nothing wrong with them. It's just the, the approach. A, it's not, it's evidence-based, but it wasn't put together by someone who's had a, a lot of experience in it. And B, it's not made for them. And I think the thing is with therapy, it's made for you. It's it, you sit down with that person and they explore where you left off last week and what mood you've been in this week. And it puts all the pieces together. Now, having said that, there can be good therapists and bad therapists as well, you know, who can take you down the wrong route. But long answer uh, to a, a question, but in short, no, I don't think it can replace therapy. No, absolutely. And, and that's, I totally agree with you. And I've seen some shocking things as well on social media with influencers saying quite unhelpful advice, you know, people with big following saying you don't need a therapist, you don't need to go to therapy, you just need to ask yourself lots of questions. And again, that can be very, very unhelpful. But one thing I, I loved what you've just said is this need for an individual 
approach to treatment rather than a sort of one size fits all. And also looking at individuals through an intersectional lens as well. We've, We've touched on disadvantaged people, but also women. So everybody needs to have treatments or therapies that are individual to them and I think that's somewhere where therapy can provide a solution to some and in, intersectionality is so important to consider and you know there's a recent McKinsey report that was looking at women in the workplace but it shows figures which we all know are not great but then it shows the increase in the impact of those figures for people depending on how much complexity they have to their intersectionality and the more that complexity increases the bigger the impact it has on them and the more negatively it it impacts them. And it's also interesting because here in the States, I'm living in the States now, I was talking to um, a professor of social sciences the other week and she was saying to me how the black communities in America are unlikely to seek mental health support because of stigma. It doesn't surprise me, but yet I didn't realise And then you start thinking, well, when they do, are there enough people who actually understand their experience of the world? Are there enough therapists who, if it's got stigma to it, are there enough young black people who are encouraged to become therapists to then support those people? And so there's, there's so much complexity to it. And the intersectionality piece is absolutely critical, I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's similar in the UK as well. Black and brown people and people from ethnic minorities face greater barriers when it comes to seeking mental health support, because there is a stigma attached to it culturally. But also there isn't the culturally responsive care that they need, where therapists understand their lived experiences. So often what they find is they're having mm, to explain things, want. which shouldn't have to be explained. So it also puts them off um, Seeking therapy, so yeah, it, you're, like you say, it's, it's a very complex piece of the the jigsaw, um, and it, it is one that does need solving as well at some point. And I think there are more and more black and brown therapists coming into the field, um, and I think some of the the stigma is reducing as there's more and more awareness. But we're still not no, quite and then there, it comes I down to think. research as well because you look at even even looking at gender. So the majority of neuroscientific research is carried out on the male brain. Why? Because the female brain has hormonal fluctuations, which makes it more difficult to study. Oh, really? (laughs) Makes it more difficult to live with as well. Um, But no one's then, I mean, there are women, female neuroscientists who are now pushing back. And that's not to say there aren't male neuroscientists as well. But there's so much in terms of the way the research is carried out to, to support different groups, it's focused on white males. It's not focused on females. It's not focused on intersectionalities of any sort. And, and as we said, the more complex the intersectionality is, the more support you actually need. So it needs within academia people pushing, pushing, pushing on where we're doing the research as well. But I think if you, if you take away having the therapist and having the research if you can find a mentor and someone to guide you now that's not a replacement for mental health at all but if you can find a mentor who is like you who has a few steps ahead who's lived a similar life in whatever way 
then I think the power of that is incredible, not having to explain yourself, but have someone go, yeah, yeah, I know how that feels. And there's nothing like that. No, absolutely. And it's the same for somebody who's going through alcohol recovery or drug drug recovery. They they need a mentor or a role model, somebody who's already been through that process, who's already recovered, and it gives them a sense of motivation, hope, inspiration, and, and that agency to think, well, yes, if they can do it, I can tread in their steps and also recover from this addiction. So I think having those role models that are representative of you, where you can see yourself in, in a few years' time or where you'd like to be, is very, very important. Um, I was going to ask you about role modeling as parents and how we, you know, role model to our children, because we know, and I read in your book, that actually parents are the biggest, most influential role models to children. So as parents, obviously, we're, you know, like we said earlier, we're, we're often very busy. And it's the last thing we think about, we we may just behave flippantly, and we're always in a rush, we've got millions of things to juggle. What can we do as parents to consciously be aware of how we're role modeling to our children? I think one thing is that it's an awful lot of responsibility and that can feel overwhelming because we have so many responsibilities anyway as parents. So I think it's firstly, sort of, don't be too hard on yourself. Um, secondly, there's one thing that I always say. So I, my daughters are a little bit older now, so 16 and 11. But when they were littler, I never swore in front of them. But if, if I was in a car occasionally and someone did something stupid, I would swear. And I would think, I shouldn't have sworn. But then I turn to them and I will say, oh, mummy shouldn't have said that. That's a really naughty word, isn't it? Why do you think mummy said that? And so we would explore why I was doing the thing that I wasn't meant to do. And so I think, you know, it's not that everything needs to be a learning sort of situation, but I think the point is, if we don't behave like we think we should have, we can overtly call that out. Because we're human. We're not going to be perfect. We're not going to be in a good mood the whole time. You know, there are things that are going to stress and worry us. But if you explain that, they understand that behavior. Rather than sitting there and questioning, is that because of me? Did I do something wrong? Or is that how you're meant to behave when that situation arises? And we know that once you've brought those things into the conscious sort of conscious mind and you're talking about them, it makes it far easier to understand and unpack them and make sense of them absolutely and like you say there's no such thing as perfect parent and we shouldn't be so hard as on ourselves and we all have our moments where we think oh maybe I should not have behaved in that way and that's actually okay you know and we can have discussions around it but you know the key takeaway here is never to really be hard on yourself and and we just can keep trying to to be better as parents and just being aware that actually our actions do influence our children probably more than we realize um so it's just really sort of being aware of that i wanted to ask you about cognitive empathy in your book you wrote about which i loved i loved the way you explained a lot of scientific theories using storytelling. It's really, really fascinating, really, really interesting. And I really um, enjoyed reading about cognitive empathies, particularly because you've written about how it can prevent burnout. 
So could you just tell us a little bit about what that is? We, we think of empathy, in effect, it's feeling what someone else feels, but to a lesser extent. It's when someone stubs their toe and you think, oh, oh, that hurt. Or, you know, you watch something on TV where someone sort of run, a car runs into someone, you're like, oh, um, it's, it's those sorts of things. We naturally move to emotional empathy, which is where we feel it and we engage with it. And what can happen is if we do that, so say we see someone in distress, we want to help them, it's someone we love, and then we go away and we continue worrying about it for 10 hours. That's draining for us and it's not helpful for them. But it's easy to say, oh, don't do that. But the next form of empathy is believed because they're still trying to understand this from from the perspective of the brain is cognitive empathy, which is, I would describe it a bit like, go back to the car example, driving along, most of the time, I didn't swear when I wanted to when the kids were in the car. I might have wanted to, I might have felt really angry and frustrated, but I stopped myself before it comes to swearing. Obviously, I give an example of not always. It's a very similar process. So it's the emotional bit is the, I feel what you're feeling. And then moving into the cognitive bit is, but I'm going to take a step away from that. Now, that doesn't mean you no longer have empathy or you no longer feel for that person, but it means you're putting yourself in their shoes. You're understanding it but you're not letting the emotion drown your own thinking and your own emotional response to a situation, which makes you far more helpful. And it also makes it far more, far less likely that you'll burn out. Yeah. And I think that's quite an important skill to learn because especially with Mm. what's going on in the world and there's so much distress out there, it's hard not to feel other people's pain and suffering so it's a really good skill to learn to be able to step away and still be compassionate and empathetic but not let it drain you or let it affect the rest of your day because you still have to function so how do we go about no, it's, doing it's that? not easy um and and it's not really taught and so I use the example in the book with healthcare professionals because I've worked a lot with doctors um, and nurses and you see how those doctors who have empathy can get burnt out because they are taking on their patients' worries and concerns and continuing to worry about them afterwards. The the way I, I developed it, and that doesn't mean I use it in all situations, was through being a psychologist. And uh, when I first became an organizational psychologist, I had to profile someone for a role and they were made redundant. And it was because of the profile I had done, which I found really hard. And it wasn't why I'd gone into this in the first place type of thing. And they got incredibly distressed and really distressed. And so I gave this woman my phone number and I said, you call me anytime you need to, day or night. And she did. So she was in a state and she was calling me at two, three in the morning and it was becoming problematic because I couldn't support her, but it also wasn't my place to support her. So I spoke to people who are more senior than me. I got help, blah, blah, blah. And we made sure she was looked after. But what I learned from that is there's a line. And it's like, you don't cross that line. And from then on, I was able to sit in sessions where someone else was crying, someone else was upset. And I wouldn't get upset myself, but I wouldn't sit there going, no, why are you crying? But I would be like, okay, 
let's have a look at that, let's think about that and show gentle compassion. But actually, you have to consciously do that. And I think there is the ways of doing it are getting better at using mindfulness skill sets if you can. So you're able to step away from your emotion and just sort of observe it a little, I can't say that word, observe, observe it a little bit rather than, rather than fuse with it. Or using skills that you'll find in something like ACT, which is acceptance and commitment therapy. Or that I, if that all sounds like hard work, there's um, just a quick way of doing it is I imagine myself as a detective. So you think about if you are whoever your favorite detective is, so I don't know, say Poirot. Um, Poirot sits and looks and listens and puts things together and works them out and understands how different people feel and what that means. He doesn't take it on and he doesn't make a judgment. And I think that's the thing. It's, it's try not to make a judgment and try not to take it on. And the, one of the ways of doing that is to remove yourself, see yourself as a detective and you're gathering all the evidence you can and you're really trying to understand so you're listening and you're engaged, but you've got a hat on that you can take off after you've been with that person as well. I love that analogy, being a detective and staying curious rather than being a character in that story, just observing A really it. good way of describing it. Yeah, I love that. No, that's really helpful because I think it's a, it is a skill that takes time to learn without sort of getting embroiled in someone else's story, it's very easy to do and causes a lot of pain and stress for people. So, uh, yeah, thank you for sharing that. Which leads us on quite nicely to emotional intelligence and self-awareness. We know that we've talked about it earlier. Some of these skills, soft skills, are not taught to us in school, but we know in terms of healing, when we talk about healing, we're actually saying that your mind, body, emotions, and your spirit are all in alignment. So healing starts from within. And if we're looking at it starting from within, it's really about understanding your emotions and how you feel and being able to express them, being able to articulate them. And often that's very difficult for people to do. It's not something that comes naturally. We're not, it's not a skill we're taught at school. So this self-awareness and emotional intelligence, what would you say as a psychologist, how should somebody go about becoming a little bit more emotionally intelligent? What sort of things could they be so doing? I think the self-awareness piece is a good place to start. And there's a lady called Dr. Tasha Urich who's here in the States, and I've actually had her on my podcast, and she's done a really good TED Talk on self-awareness, and that's where her area of study is. Um, and she says that when she first researched all these people, she was expecting the people who were more introspective, who sort of reflected more on themselves to be more self-aware. But that's not what the research was showing. And she was thinking, oh, no, I've got all this research wrong. What's happening? But what she realized is that there are the people who aren't self-aware. We, we all know those. <laughs> we meet them. Um, there are the people who reflect and in, in, introcept or look at themselves and question why are things a certain way. But the, what she called the self-awareness unicorns, the people that were actually truly self-aware is, they did that in a different way. So those people that reflected too much and asked why too much ended up being people with high levels of anxiety and depression. So there's a word of warning there when it comes to reflecting and looking inside. 
is how we do it. Because the people that were self-aware and it helped them, they, rather than asking, she put it down simply to this question, rather than asking why, they asked what. So in the outside world, we're encouraged to look for why. And, and it's important for problem solving. But it doesn't work in our own head. So we apply the methods from the outside world in our own head and then get frustrated because we're not getting anywhere. Because we can't answer why in our own head. We don't know why. We don't know why an emotion has come up necessarily. But we can ask what. So it brings us into a more constructive space. So it's a, if you've failed an exam, what have I learned from that experience? What did it tell me? What do I need to do differently next time? As opposed to why, why am I so stupid? Why can't I pass any of my exams? What is wrong with me type thing? So that's first piece. A second piece on emotional intelligence is with empathy, it's first understanding an emotion in ourselves and then it's secondly recognizing that emotion in other people. And there are simple things like during the pandemic, I, I got frontliners, uh, ICU consultants. I printed out these words of emotions when you come out of intensive care, when you've gone into your break room, I want you to just circle one of those. It's bringing something, because we're not, we're not taught to name our emotions and things like that. It's such a simple exercise, but it helps our brain process it because it moves it from the, the more emotional center of the brain to the more rational center of the brain. It also helps us then discuss it with other people. So I'll say to them, you know, someone else one of your colleagues get them to ring how they're feeling and then you don't even need to say much but it's like I feel that I'm so frustrated that you know, I'm having to decide whether people live or die it's more than frustration and so that brings a communication and an understanding around the emotion and then the other thing I would say I mean there's loads of different things you can do but the other key thing I think I would say is come back to that detective piece so if you're playing the detective and you're hypothesizing rather than judging what other people are going through. You give them the space to explore it for themselves rather than saying, why don't you do this? Or how about you do that? Or I think this, or could it be because of that? It's like, what do you think? Give them space, help them to think. And also, if you work in a, an environment where you're sat around a table with other people, it's really good fun because you can sit there and you just watch and you listen and you think and you piece things together. And what it's actually doing is, A, it's improving your listening skills. B, it will improve your impact because rather than sitting there looking down or doing something, you're actually sitting there listening. And C, it will start to improve your emotional intelligence because you are reading what's going on in the environment that you're sitting in. I love that. So being open and curious rather than judging and and just being receptive to to observing what's happening around you can actually like you say make you a better listener help to improve your relationship skills the bonding the trust all of those things well i suppose that comes hand in hand with emotional intelligence anyway so people who are have higher in emotional intelligence are likely to i suppose have smoother relationships maybe a lot of evidence that it massively improves relationships because we have a better understanding and we allow space for ourselves and that person, but also improves leadership skills. But the thing is with emotional intelligence is it's so hard to measure. You really need other people looking at you because you will rate, you'll probably know this, but it's notorious that 
people who have low emotional intelligence and low self-awareness will rate themselves as having high. And people who have high emotional intelligence and high self-awareness, well, they know there's a lot to learn still because there always is. They tend to rate themselves as low. So really it needs to be other people around us that are calibrating any ratings that are collected on emotional intelligence. But within a work environment, you know, leaders know that emotional intelligence is important, but they can't measure it. So not in the way they can measure what's the bottom line impact or how how motivated are your people on your people scores. So it makes it something that's kind of, you know, we know it's important. Yeah, yeah. But we're not going to do anything about it because we don't know how. And it's actually really quite essential for for the world and for moving forward and in all these systems and just generally within our society, having that emotional intelligence and empathy, they mm. all go hand in hand, these soft skills, because that's what helps us to move forward as individuals, which is what your platform is all about, is when you have those people who believe in you, who have those skills themselves, we can start developing those skills in the generations or the people who are looking to move to to that level. Yeah, and I think it's every little helps with things like this. So you may sometimes, if you're emotionally intelligent, struggle with the state of the world um, and your tiny, tiny, tiny role in it. And that's, I say, any of us have a tiny role in it. But we also have a massive role in it in that if we're conscious and we're doing what we can to improve ourselves and to help and support the people around us, that has a hugely positive knock-on effect. And so while it might feel like, well, I'm not helping people in the Middle East by doing this, I'm not helping people in Ukraine doing this, not directly, no, but by the nature of helping to shift the way society evolves and grows, you are. Yeah, it's very easy to feel helpless in these situations and feel very, very small or have feel that you have very little impact. But actually, if we go back to the concept of, everything being interconnected and we're all interconnected those interactions those tweets whatever it is that you're doing do make a difference because it has a rippling effect doesn't it because it's it's like the world is it's Mm -hmm. like a spider's web everything and everybody is connected and we only have to look at the pandemic when we had to social distance just come in into contact with one person had massive repercussions and and actually there's a piece of research i write about in mirror thinking that was carried out i think it was published in the british medical journal but it was looking at people i think it was about six thousand people over the course of five years i might have got my numbers muddled up because i haven't looked at it recently but it basically said that they observed that if someone is happier then their friends are happier their friends friends are happier and their friends friends, friends are happier. And they said that the same applies for depression, anxiety, drinking, uh, eating, all these different factors. And it's that because they're almost invisible processes that are happening all the time, we either take them for granted and go like, yeah, we know that. Or we just don't put our focus on them in the way that could be helpful. And that's so important to be aware of that factor that who we're surrounding ourselves with does directly impact our happiness our well-being our health so uh, every now and then it's good to have that audit of who are we spending most of our time absolutely and it's not to say cut off friends that you've had for life but maybe 
see less of them or be sure to boundary what you talk about with them. If you know they're going to go down on a rant about something, steer clear of that. Or even tell them, say, I find I really struggle when when you sort of start going on about X, Y and Z because we can't do anything about it. And it just sort of brings me down. Um, but So it's not cutting people out, but it's being either conscious when you're with them and being conscious of the boundaries you're keeping, telling them or just spending a lot less time with them. Absolutely, Fiona, because I think at the end of the day, we need one another to thrive and survive. So we don't want to be cutting people off, but we definitely want to be mindful of how much of the energy we're consuming and what impact it's really having on us, because often we're not aware of it because you do need to take a step back to really have a look at what impact is this having on me having these discussions all the time so yeah thank you for that so I was going to ask you what scientific research or developments in your field are you excited about whilst people are scared of AI and I think there are reasons to be scared of AI particularly when we don't know what biases are being fed into algorithms. And that's one thing that we learn is like, look at data, think about data, think about where the biases are, eliminate those biases. But if it is used responsibly, I think it can be hugely helpful as a supplement, not as a replacement, but as a supplement to human support. And that could be, for example, what we're looking at moving forward with OCA, which is the platform we're we've built is helping people understand how to help people and so I want to help whoever it is my mum because my stepfather has cancer or you know my daughter because she's struggling with something at school and I don't know how and I don't know what to say or you have AI that knows you knows your situation and you can discuss it with that AI we know that it helps we've seen that these chatbots help people the ones that are trained properly, when people know that that's what they're talking to. And so it's it's if you're aware, you're not using it as a replacement, you're not using it as the answer, but you're using it to help guide the way you think and support you. But then the one thing I think is really important, it should be supporting people in their relationships. So it shouldn't be ever replacing a relationship. It should be supplementing and helping and supporting a relationship. So I guess, you know, there's lots and lots of different things going on. Neuroscience is getting better at being able to do computational mapping where we understand more areas of the brain. Neuroscience is often misunderstood because the way we do know things and what we do know at the moment is quite broad as we're looking at fmri studies it's blood flow it's not actually individual neuronal activity and it's very difficult to get to that level but with the mapping that we're now able to do with a lot of the more complex computational neuroscience that's exciting in terms of what it can tell us and being able to look at those people who are underrepresented in the research for example so people at intersectionalities There are lots of things, I think there are things to be cautious of and I do think there needs to be more governance around a lot of stuff. I think there needs to be more understanding in the public of who they should be listening to, not because someone's got a bigger ego or someone's better, but because some people have expertise, some people are basing it on evidence, other people are basing it on evidence that doesn't apply to you. So 
don't take it for rote. And then other people are just telling you what works for them in their life. And that might, that's great as long as it's these nuances, it's caveated with this worked for me in my life. You might want to try it rather than this is the way to do it because it worked for me. And there's small differences in those things. But I could go on for hours about stuff I'm excited about, so I'll stop there. That's really wonderful. Thank you for sharing that, Fiona. It really is quite exciting, and especially the intersectionality piece. I'm very, very interested in how AI is going to facilitate that. So thank you for that, because it's given me some hope. Is there anything else you would like to share with the listeners? Is there anything that they can take away or anything you would like to add? The thing is that every single person listening has potential that is untapped wherever they're at in their career, even if they're a senior leader or if they're not in their career, if they're at home. And it's really beneficial to explore that and to understand what you bring to the world because we do all bring something to the world. What is that and how is that going to fulfill you? So it's not doing it for the sake of being told to do it or what other people think you should do, but what's going to bring you alive in a way that's going to add value, your value to the world. And I think take the time to explore that and sit down with a, a book that's evidence-based and work through it with a friend. Or, But, but don't think, oh, because I'm... I don't know, I'm in my 30s, my 40s, my 50s, my 60s, whatever age it is. Well, I can't do it now because you can. You can always do it. I love that. Everybody's got potential in them. It's just finding and unlocking it and finding the right people around you to help you realise it. I just love that. What a positive finish to the podcast episode. Thank you, Fiona. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been wonderful speaking to you. I thoroughly enjoyed this conversation with Fiona. I found it empowering to know that prioritizing your role models, checking how and who influences us may be one of the most important things we can do for our mental health and happiness. Like Fiona says, you only need one person to believe in you to help unlock your potential. I hope some of you found this episode helpful. I'll be back next week with another brilliant guest So please make sure you're back here by following the podcast on Spotify or Apple. And if you enjoyed this episode, then please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or share with a friend who might find it helpful. Thank you so much for listening. Take care.